Welcome to the Sherry Group Podcast. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. Yes, welcome to the Sherry Group Podcast. My name is Drew Demery, joined here by my faithful co-host, David Sherry. Dave, how are you doing this time? I'm doing great, Drew. It's always fun to get together and really excited about our uh, our guest today. He's been a longtime friend, so looking forward to this episode. Yes, our guest, Tom Neppel, works here in Iowa. He's a landscape architect. He is a professor at Iowa State University and has a professional practice doing that landscape architecture. Tom, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, guys. It's so great to uh, be with you finally. I've been looking forward to this for uh, quite some time, so glad to be here. Awesome. We're so glad to have you. Fill in the blanks here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, some of your professional practice. Uh, We would love to get to know you a little bit. Yeah, sure. Well, like you said, I'm a licensed landscape architect, have a practice based here in Ames, Iowa, where I also teach in the landscape architecture program at Iowa State. And yeah, so I have a practice based here. I work primarily with camps and outdoor and environmental education centers. I do a bit of residential garden design as well as part of that practice. And then uh, at the university, I teach ecological design studios. So hoping to talk a little bit about that today. Of course. Welcome to the show. I want to get things kicked off here with kind of a general question of why should a camp care about landscape architecture? That seems a little specific. Sure. Well, uh, you're going to get a biased answer here talking (laughs) to a landscape architect. Um, You know, this probably ties in a little bit of the things that we've all come to know through Richard Louv's work and understanding that camps are special places and campers and staff have this place attachment that doesn't always necessarily include the landscape, but often does because many of the experiences are outdoor oriented and happen in the landscape. And, you know, I think we're, we're realizing there are some, you know, potential ecological concerns that we have to address too. When we think about environmental issues and a lot of those are rooted in how we think about developing our properties and uh, think about land use and impermeable surfaces and buildings and parking lots and and all of the above. So I think it's a a critical thing for us to think about both in terms of uh, cities and communities, but certainly in camps as well. Awesome. Dave, what do you want to know? Let's just talk a little bit about uh, what exactly does a landscape architect mean in the camp world? So when I think of Tom Neppel, I think of camp master planning, like uh, designing the property. And I also think about some of the erosion projects you helped me with, but what is a landscape architect to camping? Well, we have the ability to work across scale. You know, we can work on a, on a very small, intimate garden scale and setting, talking about a few hundred square feet, if that, you know, so if a camp is interested in food production or, you know, wants to grow a vegetable garden, it can be as small in scale as that. And it can be as large in scale as, a, as an entire camp property plan. So think of a 300, 500 an acre property. Um, landscape architects are trained and educated. And if they're licensed, they've passed an exam to work across you know, that entire range of scale. And you know, so we take courses in ecological design and soils, and we have an understanding of microclimates and the impact that land development like buildings, roads, outdoor program areas, that sort of a thing can can have on the landscape. And that's different than other disciplines. You know, we work with architects and engineers. Um, We sort of fill 
in those spaces in between those other disciplines as well. Because again, that the underpinning of our education and that the foundation that that provides. Tom and I had worked several projects together. Um, and I think of two projects in particular. One was we had a, uh, an area in our creek that erosion was real bad, but we, we actually wanted to build it into a play area. And Tom came in and designed how to manage that erosion and uh, designed a kind of a stone staircase down into that creek so that it was safe, but also environmentally friendly. Then the other, the most recent project we did together, uh, we were gonna be building six new cabins and we knew about where we wanted those cabins, but Tom came in and helped us figure out where exactly to place them so that they looked good and they got the most sun and they had the least environmental impact. And it was all much more intentional than just me picking six spots to set a cabin down. Yeah, well, I do. I remember both of those projects. And, you know, I think in, in the stream project, one of the things that we, we talked about was just the, the frequency of flooding and the frequency of the types of storms that lead to flooding is certainly increased in the, you know, in the time, certainly in the, over the course of my career. Um, you know, and so I think that's, that's kind of an interesting dynamic to a landscape architect's practice and how do you figure out how to create space for people and meaningful experiences for people in these landscape settings and do so safely? And then, yeah, you know, Dave, I think the, the cabin site planning project is a good example of the type of mapping that we do in practice. And, you know, we take a look at topography and slopes and soil types and that sort of thing. You really find the areas that are suitable for that type of development. And, I, you know, there are tools and, and, and different apps and things that we can use to help us do that, GIS being one of them and CAD being others in terms of the mapping. And I think too, the other thing it does is it reveals these opportunities and constraints in a way that, you know, that might even be useful to implement in an outdoor education program. You know, something as mundane as a topo map or a slope map actually starts to reveal these pretty interesting things about the landscape, you know, that uh, have the chance with some clients to translate that into their outdoor education curriculum. Sure. So in camping, you know, we want our, we want our camps to look pretty, right? As part of our product, we want it to look nice when, when people come down and see it, when parents are dropping off their kids. We also need it to be something that's functional, which typically means low maintenance. What would be just some, and, and I know it's difficult because you're, there's so many variables, but if you were to share, hey, here are some landscaping ideas or tricks or tips to think about that could kind of work as a general for a lot of camps that are low maintenance, they're functional, yet attractive for camp. What would be some, some thoughts and ideas that you would have? I think one of the questions to ask, and one of the questions I usually do ask is how much time do you spend cutting grass and mowing for, as an example? And, you know, typically there's, depending on the camp setting, there's a lot of a lot of staff time invested in that, or somebody's running the string trimmer. And that's, you know, they're essentially their job for the summer. And, you know, so one of the things that I'll look for are simplifying uh, planting beds in areas where you have, you know, a couple of different types of planting. So turf grass against a planting bed. You know, I have a clear boundary of those to have nice, big, graceful curves to the lawn and the planting area. It, it, it tends to look better aesthetically. And then you also cut down on the amount of time you have to push and pull the mower back and forth, that sort of a thing. 
So I think that's that's an opportunity. I think anywhere that you can accent entrances and entryways into buildings, you know, you start to think about uh, planting scheme or what we would refer to as planting design, where we're focused mostly on plants, plant red buds or service berry uh, in key areas. And then when they flower in the spring, that tends to you know, highlight those those key areas on camp and can actually serve as kind of a navigational piece. Uh, I think stormwater management is another piece that, you know, landscaping can help with that. I think if you can plant natives wherever possible, you know, they tend to take some time to establish native wildflowers in a meadow, that sort of a thing. It takes a few years, but once they're established, typically the maintenance is reduced over time. So if you can get through those, you know, I think generally three to five years in terms of establishing a meadow, um, it'll pay dividends uh, long term. And, you know, if you're planting something native, it's used to the climate and the microclimate, the soil types, the precipitation, uh, the temperature range, that sort of a thing. So those are just a few of many potential strategies there that come to mind. Sure. One quick question before we take a little break here. Where can I find a landscape architect? Is this, do I, do I Google you <laughs> or uh, how am I going to find um anybody in my area who can help me out with this besides, you know, just my internal team, I've got some ideas, but now we want to make it a reality. How do we find you? Well, yeah, certainly uh, Google um, is a great, I mean, you could, you could start there. Um, there's a professional association, the American Society of Landscape Architects that um, could be a, a conduit uh, to connect you to uh, professionals in your area. And, you know, it's maybe difficult to find, you know, it's, you're, you're maybe not going to know what that particular practice's specialties are, you know, necessarily. Um, and, and camp planning is a, is a unique specialty or a niche. Um, but, you know, at the very least, it'll get you uh, one step closer to connecting with a professional that could, uh, could likely help you out on a project. Cool. Perfect. Awesome. Well, let's take a quick break here, guys, and we'll dive back into the conversation here with Tom Nepple. The Sherry Group LLC is a proud supporter of summer camps and nonprofits nationwide, specializing in operations, fundraising, and executive coaching. Contact the Sherry Group today at www.thesherrygroupllc.com. Thank you. Okay, we are back with the Sherry Group podcast. Welcome back, listeners. We have with us today Tom Nepple, a landscape architect, and he knows his stuff. We are well on our path to education here. Tom, I want to talk a little bit about this process. So we found a landscape, or we've maybe contacted a landscape architect. We want to add some trees over there. There's no shade in this corner of camp. Can you kind of walk us through the whole process of how we might make that happen? You know, I certainly from uh, the LA's perspective of things, what I would say is it's, it's useful when we can collaborate with a client that is engaged and, and has buy-in to the process, you know, the, a commitment to the process. And, and I know different professionals will have a range of uh, maybe opinions on this, but I, I prefer clients who, you know, want to be involved in the process. So they want to sit down and workshop out a few ideas. 
they're willing to engage volunteers or at least, you know, sort of engage um, campers and parents and others in the process as appropriate. And, you know, that isn't always the case, but where, where it happens, I think it leads to a pretty effective engaged product in the end. But in terms of the technical approach, you know, where we begin really is a design program, which is a list of things that you're looking for at, at camp. So as you mentioned, it could be that you need shade on a particular part of the property, or you need a different circulation strategy for safety and access and functionality. The next step is a series of mapping, you know, uh, mapping existing conditions, topo soils, existing vegetation. Um, you know, from there, the it's a merging between the design program, the wish list with the suitabilities of the site. That can be a pretty robust process, rather complex process, depends on the site, depends on the program, how complex those are. But, you know, generally it, it begins with those first three steps, establishing the design program, collecting the site data assessment, and then uh, translating that into a conceptual uh, master plan where the plan begins to take shape. Wonderful. To follow up on that real quick, Tom, I would imagine that you've worked with, well, I know that you've worked with plenty of camps, plenty of facilities teams. I would imagine you work pretty closely with facilities teams because this is facilities related. Uh, any good advice for collaborating? Because you, you talked about engagement, collaboration, some commitment, working together. How should we actually do that? Should I call you once a week or just maybe some of the challenges or successes throughout that process? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think it, Drew, it, it'll depend, I think, on the project scope. Okay, so you know, if it's a planting design project, that may be short term, rather fairly straightforward. It may not require a, a robust, complex inventory and site data analysis. Uh, master plans typically do because there's just more involved when you're looking at the totality of the project or the property. In terms of meetings, I, you know, I think uh, from my own experience, the, the weekly frequency is probably a little more frequent than anything that I might have uh, experienced, uh, but others might maybe have monthly. Oftentimes, you know, it's a matter of meeting monthly. It sort of depends on your board or your property committee's schedule, you know, and so if you meet monthly, I like to, to meet maybe every month or every other month, depending on what other priorities you have on your, uh, on your committee agendas and your, and your board agendas. But I would say a, a regularity to the meeting process is, is very useful because you want to maintain momentum. You know, it helps to go see a site throughout the course of time and in different seasons of the year. You know, even someone who's practiced as long as I have, you learn things when you visit the site in March compared to July, uh, compared to November. And so, you know, even that ability to be on site throughout the seasons, because I don't know the, the site and the property as well as you do. You know, in that sense, you're really the property expert in terms of the experiential aspects of things and how things function. And I'm, my job is to learn that. And really the only way that I can do that, and I think it's true for other LAs, is to spend time with you um, as often, you know, as we can work that out. I love that. Yeah, we were talking with our architect designer, um, Adam Allgaard, and he kind of had similar sentiments of building a relationship, checking in, um, not necessarily being overbearing, but also not just giving 
an architect the entire workload and say, okay, deliver us something magical in six months. It's a matter of building a relationship, um, which I think is a pretty common theme uh, in camping. Um, it's great to hear that that also works with landscape. And I love this idea of visiting throughout the seasons. I had not even considered that, that you might put a skating rink somewhere and then in the summer, like what the heck are you going to do with that skating rink? Um, you know, that kind of a thing of seeing it in the seasons. I really love that idea. Dave, I'm going to pitch back to you. Yeah, thank you. So I want to go back. You mentioned mapping before, and I'm going back to the archives from when you and I would work together way back when we first started working together. And through 18 years at camp, we laid out buildings, uh, did some master planning sort of things with the camp. We dealt with some erosion issues. We did some plantings and trees and sidewalks and all these things. But when we started that whole process, you really encouraged us to invest in some time mapping camp out. And uh, I remember you came out and you were, you were out there for several days over the course of a few months. And you ended up bringing us back a map that had several layers on it that showed everything from soil types to where the water runs to, you know, all, all these different things. And I think if I remember correctly, I think you called it an inventory. And we used that when we were looking at everything from where to build buildings to where to plant trees to where to put roads. That was something we continued to come back to. Can you just talk a little bit about why is this mapping? What does that look like? And why was that so important for you to encourage us to start there? I think what that mapping process does is it tends to detangle this really complex thing that is the landscape. You know, there's so much happening in the landscape in terms of the built environment and the natural environment and the hydrology, you know, hydrologic processes and the people's experiences of it. And I think the design process where you isolate each of those on their individual layers, plenty of precedents for doing this. And the ones you mentioned are, are good examples. Topography on its own, you, you understand the landform. Hydrology on its own, you understand how stormwater moves through the site. Um, you isolate the, the paths, you start to understand, okay, you know, this part of the property, we don't really have many paths. Now, now, you all may understand that based on your experience being on site. But, you know, in terms of a, if you think of a master plan where you're engaging volunteers, people who don't necessarily know the property as well as you, it reveals these things to everyone that's involved in the process. And it reveals it to your landscape architect. You know, by isolating those things and then re-intersecting, we can start to identify, like if you're having problems with erosion, I bet we can probably find what, what the causes of that are by isolating a few things in the mapping and diagramming of the property. Um, and then again, experiencing the site and seeing stormwater run off the site will also reveal those things too. And so the mapping and the site visits go hand in hand there. I, you know, I think too, if you have an outdoor educational program or element to who you are and what you do, then, you know, those maps can live on as images that your, your campers are, are spending time with, or, you know, maybe we print a set of maps that campers take out into the field and, you know, they're trying to understand where the slope break happens or where there's a soil, a couple of different soil types where those meet. And that's the part of it that I think I get excited about because these things could be perceived as mundane and ordinary, but, they could be utilized even after the planning study is finished. 
Yeah, well, I, I've got to be honest. When you were suggesting all this years ago, I thought, boy, Tom, you're nuts. <laughs> what? Why is this going to matter to me? But um, but you convinced us it was worth it. And I can tell you that those maps lived by my desk. They were pulled out almost monthly for 15, 16 years. Um, they were a regular part, and you had included everything from the things you just listed, but you also included where the sewer lines ran and the electrical and all of the stuff that was built on camp. And that was uh, proved to be one of the most useful tools that I had as a director that I never would have dreamt we would have used as much as we had. I, I think too, for a camp that may not have been master planned uh, in the beginning. And, you know, that's probably the majority of, of camp properties, uh, you know, that they just sort of were developed over time, but maybe with, maybe with a vision a strategic vision, but may, but perhaps not the the plan to carry that vision out. And you know, I think in not that it's unimportant to other camps that are master planned necessarily, but to to camps which maybe didn't come about in that way. Um, you know, being able to isolate each of those different land uses or utilities from the roads, or you know, show utilities with buildings. Again, I think you start to see potentially where um, some opportunities and constraints are. So Dave, when you were considering working with Tom, you said you, there was a lot to consider and wow, was it worth it? I think about, you were probably also thinking about dollars and cents too, as most camp administrators are when they, when they hear the word architect or designer. So Tom, can you maybe talk us through geez, some of those hesitations and, and how you overcome those hesitations, because certainly that comes up with every project. There's a cost for every project. Um, how can you put camp directors on the path towards working with a great landscape architect to, to make it well worth it? Yeah, I mean, most certainly it's, uh, you know, again, depending on the scope and the timeline, how complex the, the project is, we could be talking about anywhere between a few to several thousand dollars. So between four and five digits uh, in terms of uh, master planning fee. Uh, you know, I think if you were to compare that um, with the ultimate development cost or the construction budget, it's, you know, it's likely going to be less than, it's going to be a few percent of that development budget. I understand the hesitancy because, you know, you could also, with that fee, you could actually make capital improvements. You could build stuff with that money. There's an opportunity cost um, if, if you invest in the, the planning fee. I, I guess what I would say is I think if you have any of those hesitancies, uh, back, uh, Drew, to your point, um, as we were talking earlier about cultivating this relationship, I think, you know, if, if you can make and cultivate a relationship with a planner, landscape architect, architect for that matter, that you're going to find that they're more apt and willing to likely work with you and sort of chip away at this thing over time even. And I, you know, there are certain things that professionals can do. We can charrette a project where we might mobilize and it's a concentrated effort and we have a bunch of people there for the weekend and you provide food and a space for people to work. And, you know, we sort of rock out a, a series of concepts or something like that, you know? Uh, so I think there are strategies that can be uh, budget friendly and get ideas translated into something a little bit more tangible. Uh, but I, I think in the end, it's about, like you said, it's about cultivating a relationship with the professional that 
you know, you're comfortable with and that you trust and have faith in and, and, and they, you. That's wonderful. Thanks, Tom. Dave, you got any last questions here for Tom? Well, you know, it's always tough in a 25 minute or so segment to really get into what, uh, what all you do, but I just, I, I guess I want to actually wrap up with my experience of working with Tom and that, especially with this mapping and inventory that he did early on, but then um, having him be a partner with us on projects for many, many, many years. Uh, I really believe that, that our camp is better because of it. It's prettier. The water erosion is better. The buildings are better placed. Things that my staff and I really felt that we had a good grip on. Uh, the reality is bringing in somebody that has a different eye and a trained eye and a better understanding of all the surroundings and the environment uh, was it was really well worth the money for us. It was a, a great investment that I think will pay off in the long run. Not only, you know, we think of buildings when we hear landscape architect anyway, I think of buildings and I think of gardens and shrubs and trees. But the I think the big things that we learned were, were how do all those gardens, shrubs, trees, buildings, sidewalks, how do they play into one environment? And how do you consider environmental impact and understanding that our property is one of, if not our largest asset as a camp. And we want to make sure that that asset is in a good, healthy condition in 10 years, 20 years, a hundred years. And working with the landscape architect really helped us do that. I love that. I bet there's even programming opportunity where if you can find a landscape architect professional in your area, maybe they could come work with the kids on a cool project during the summer bring them in to do some cool programming or some activities. You know, we're always talking about sustainability at summer camp. We're always talking about eco-friendliness. Um, maybe there's an opportunity to inspire the next generation. Tom, yeah, any last I, sentiments for us here? Yeah, sorry about that. Dave, I, I don't think I could say it any better. I'm, um, I think what you mentioned about that process is true to my experience of working with you all in, in other places as well. It sort of brings it all together in a pretty unique way. Drew, maybe one other, one other potential resource to connect um, your listeners with the landscape architect would be a land-grant uh, institution, so a land-grant school like Iowa State here. Um, typically, they're likely to have an LA program, and therefore, they would have alumni probably in your local area, uh, so that might be one other place to make that connection. Love it. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tom. Greatly appreciate it. This has been the Sherry Group Podcast with Drew Demery, David Sherry, and Tom Neppel. Have a great one. We'll see you next time. This has been the Sherry Group Podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great day.